Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord <clears throat> by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and, that I, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The word of the Lord. Good morning. We begin a series today. It's a short four-week series in the book of Philippians. Philippians is, a, is, is one of these letters in the Bible that if you read it, you could sit down and read it in 15 to 20 minutes. And, um, and it's a really powerful, joyful read. And it's unusual because we know from uh, the way that Paul writes about it that he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, a church that he had been a part of starting. It'd be like, I planted this church in Vienna and then I go off to another place. But in that other place, he's in prison. And we sort of gloss over some of the letters that Paul writes from prison, but you have to understand something. Prison was not a good thing. It's still not a good thing, but in that ancient world, a prison was a dungeon. In a Roman prison, you didn't have light. You didn't get fed. Actually, the only way that you survived not starving to death is people in the community, friends or family, would come and bring you food. If you didn't happen to have those, you would die of starvation. Chained up in darkness and filth. Totally unsure of what's going to happen to you. You have no power, no control. Your freedom is gone. Your hope is gone. It would be utterly terrifying and totally despairing. And Paul, according to our passage, has an unknown sentence. We don't know what's going to happen to him. He says, I don't know if I'm going to be released, kept in prison, or executed. That sort of uncertainty where your life hangs in the balance and you have no power and no control is the sort that would drive any of us mad and send us over the edge. But the letter that he writes to the Philippians is a joyful letter. It's a letter filled with hope. 
He says in chapter two, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will all work out. God is in control. In chapter three, he talks about his own encouraging hope. I have set my mind on the upward calling of Christ Jesus. I am running the race. I am living towards the resurrection. Join me in that. And he finishes off the whole story or the whole letter in chapter four talking about peace. I've learned to have peace in all conditions, whether I have plenty or nothing. Whether I'm in prison, alive, dead, I I have peace that passes all understanding guarding my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. This letter filled with joy and hope and peace kicks off with this central statement in verse 21 where he is summing up the situation that he's in and here's what he says about his situation. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay, he's in prison, a horrible place, and he has no idea what's going to happen to him. And he says, if I live, I have Christ. Oh, that's a good thing. And if I die, I have Christ. That's a good thing. How can he say this? It's not, it's not fatalistic detachment. It's not that he's courageous, like, I don't care about death, I can go fight death. It's rather that he is fearless. The things that grip us with fear, he doesn't have. He's able to give this clear, compelling life statement. If I live, Christ. If I die, Christ. Well, he doesn't say Christ, he says gain. It's even better. I get to be with Christ face to face, unhindered. What we see through this letter and especially in the passage around here, is that he wants most in, Christ, in life is Christ. And that means whether he lives or dies, it doesn't matter. Not, not it doesn't matter, like he'd like to live, but oh, he'd like to be with Christ. He's actually conflicted in this. He has no fear. I don't know if any of you have ever been in fear of your life. I was when I was about 10. Here's what happened. It was at a time when uh, the TV show The A-Team was the big show for all boys roughly my age. The TV show The A-Team was four ex-Vietnam vets who went around doing good, knocking out bad guys. So of course, my friends and I decided to play A-Team. Four of us are gonna go on mission. I was always Face, which was the Face Man, which was one of the guys in the A-Team. He's the good-looking one. It was, you know, (laughs) they chose it, I don't know. So there we are on mission, and our mission was this. Well, so we lived in a neighborhood, and on the edge of the, the neighborhood was a fence line made up of the houses that had a fence line. And the other side of that was this uh, dirt alleyway, and the other side of that was a wooded land into the next neighborhood, enemy territory. And so we would often go over the fence line into no man's land to go and you know, infiltrate and spy out the enemy while we were playing A-team. This particular mission was to go and spy on Army Dog. Now, Army Dog was a white mythical wolf creature the size of a horse. He'd been known to eat people, and he did actually live at this house that was on the far side of the woods. They had no fence, no chain, no electric fence. An army dog, this creature, would come after you if you went onto his property. So our goal was to get as close as we could. We cross over the fence, hearts beating a little bit fast, and we come tree to tree. We're kind of hiding, making our way forward, right? And I'm the forward-most person at this point, And all of a sudden, as I'm hiding behind this tree, I hear the branches breaking, the leaves rustling and yelling. And I turn, and the rest of the A-team is running back towards the fence. 
At that point, I turn back and see this mythical white creature barking and running towards me. This is when fear brain kicks in. Fear brain is what causes you to see danger and possibly try to survive it. Physically, physiologically, it, it, this part of your brain called the amygdala, this little almond-shaped little thing right in the middle, the kind of reptilian center of your, of your body, really, of your brain, it kicks in and starts pumping adrenaline and cortisol into your body. It's the gas pedal on your limbic system, which is your kind of like reactionary desire system. I want to live. So the gas pedal is being pressed down. My heartbeat starts racing, which is what happens. Your lungs fill with oxygen, and you get a sudden burst of energy, strength, and mental clarity. And it's the ability to focus and react instantly faster than your eyes can even process what you're seeing. So that you move into fight or flight. I chose flight, not fight. I turned to run as fast as I could, but a dog is actually faster than a 10-year-old boy, especially this wolf-like creature. The dog sunk its teeth into my back right as I was getting to the fence. The back of my coat, not my actual back, but like the coat. But it was scary nonetheless, right? Like, that doesn't diminish the fear, the possible death. It got my coat, and I tried to shake it off as I was grabbing the fence. Uh, One of the members of the A-team grabbed hold of me and helped flip me over to safety. If it wasn't for that fear response, I would have been eaten alive. Fear is a good thing when it involves that that reactionary limbic system just kind of saving you from sudden death. It is that danger, 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 run, run, run that's inside of you. It's the ability that people have when they see a car coming towards their car to turn and swerve out of the way before they actually fully process what's happening. It's the ability that some parents have had to catch a child ready to fall because you just react. In a normal day-to-day living, you would be there a good three seconds after the baby hit the ground. But with that fear brain kicking in, you can react and save yourself or somebody else. Fear can be a good thing, but many of us live not just in fear, but in fears. Fears. Fears can be an enslaving thing, robbing us of the life that we are made to live. We're driven by the animal instinct to protect ourselves, to save ourselves, based on a whole web of fears that we spin out. If I were to say, what is your greatest fear? What I mean is this. What keeps you up at night? What is your greatest source of anxiety? What, when you think into the future, causes you to get anxious? What is your greatest nightmare? The thing that if that happened, I would just die. One of the most common fears, and especially in this area, is the fear of failure. We are a success and performance-oriented culture. And so many of us have this fear that keeps us held back, this fear of not getting in, not making the team, the fear of losing your job, running out of money, the fear of not being recognized, not getting credit, this fear of not measuring up. It's the fear that in this culture is the fear of the bee, what if I get a B? It doesn't have to be in school. 
It's wherever you're seeking your success. What if I get a B? And you spin out this entire worst case scenario, imagining the future, this web of fears. And often what we do in order to avoid risk is we hear this idea of like, oh, why don't you try out for this? Why don't you take this job? Why don't you speak here? You should lead this thing. And and inside of us, this, this thing cries out, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Danger, danger, danger. You will fail, you will fail. And we retreat and avoid. One of the most common fears is uh, what's called FOMO, which I've been told means the fear of missing out. I had to actually ask somebody not too long ago because I'm, I'm cool like that. Um, there was an article in this school's newspaper, it was the, the main article about the fear of missing out. And the article cited said that 80% of students experience the fear of missing out on a weekly or regular basis. This gets exacerbated by social media where you're constantly seeing what other people are doing and you know you're not doing it because they're doing it and you're not. The fear of missing out is that something is happening and you aren't there. So it's either I'm missing out on this great thing or more often it's actually the social pressure of I am missing out and I am being forgotten. I am being left out. I was not invited. They're gonna forget me they're rejecting me. And we again spin a web of this false narrative. They don't like me. I'm not likable. I'm a loser, I'm worthless. The inner voice inside of us plays on our fears. That inner voice plays on whatever your fears are. Where it's circling inside of your head saying, of course they don't like you, you're a loser. You hate yourself, you also disdain them, you become more and more miserable. That inner voice that that creates the doubt saying, well, don't try it, don't try out for that because then the pressure's on for you to perform. Why try it? Why put yourself through that? It's much safer not to try. Just don't do it, stay safe. By the time people are 30 or 40, they stop trying anything, it's safer. We try to ignore that inner voice or try to like kind of fill it with positive thoughts, but we can't escape it. And honestly, I can't tell whether it is my own inner voice that's just kind of my inner dialogue or what part is me and what part is Satan, but they're both there. It's the doubts, the fears that you can't do this. You don't deserve this. You're being left out. And you begin defining yourself your identity and your future based on a false set of narratives. Our fears, our fears are bound up and found underneath of our sources of identity and purpose. How you see yourself and what matters most to you will most likely uncover your source of fears. Let me say that again. Our fears are underneath on the dark side of our source of identity and purpose. How you see yourself and what matters most to you. So look, motherhood is a great vocation. It is a powerful vocation. All of us are brought into the world because of a mother, whether we know her or not, we are brought into the world as a powerful vocation and responsibility. But if your primary identity, if your main identity is mom, 
And on top of that, the purpose of your life is for your kids to be happy. You will live in constant fear of what's going to happen to them. They're going to get rejected. They'll fail. And what happens if they do fail? They're heartbroken and you're destroyed. You fear something is going to happen to them. They're not going to live up. Somebody's going to hurt them. They will get sick. Fear, fear, fear. And so you live to protect them, to solve their problems, and attack anyone who threatens their happiness. And what ends up happening is that you are building your life on an identity that is not big enough and will not free you. We fear what we can lose. A reputation, a career, our money, the love of our kids. We fear what we can lose. But what if who you are, your identity, and what you live for, your purpose, could not be lost? You would have an unshakable identity. So where do you find your identity? Where do you find an identity? The modern West, the world that we live in, the world that all of us come from, just about, but where we live, the modern West says you need to look inside of yourself to find your identity. Who you are is what you want. Who do you say you are? You define yourself. And of course, we are the most anxious, uncertain culture in the history of the world because we're trying to define ourselves inside of ourselves and we're not sure if it's the right thing. The Greeks and traditional culture, philosophers of the ancient world, said you don't look inside of yourself, you look outside of yourself. You know yourself in relation to others, family and society. Now Christianity would hold that that's somewhat true. We do need others. We find our identity in relation to others. But in that sense, the way that it's being played out here, it ends up having a broken sense of your identity because you're fixed into whatever category the culture says you are. If you're a low-caste person, you stay a low-caste. If you're an outsider, you stay an outsider. If you're high-caste, you stay there. It can be a broken system where you're finding your identity. The same is true in our culture. The gospel says you look up figuratively. You look to Jesus, to the cross and resurrection to find out who you are. Only in Christ can you find your true identity and calling. Paul in Philippians says this, facing death, facing possible death, he says, to live, Christ, to die, gain. Actually, the the is verb is not even in there. It's very simple, it's rhythmic, and it's powerful. To live, Christ, to die, gain. Sounds like he has an identity that's pretty fixed. Paul knows whose he is, who he is, and so he knows how to live. Paul believed whose he is because of what Christ had done for him. Whose he is is God's. He knows he is God's. In Philippians 1.6, he writes to the, the Philippian Christians and he says to them an encouraging word, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That good work is the gospel work that God began in their salvation. 
It is the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen that brings us forgiveness, healing, new life, eternal life. It is gospel transformation. Most of our lives are trampled down and held enslaved to guilt and shame and fear. The gospel kills guilt and shame and fear. It says you are forgiven. It says you are worthy and loved. You are a child of God destined for eternity. There is no guilt, shame, or fear in a gospel identity. And the gospel identity that God began in you, he intends to bring it to the end. He who began a good work in you is God. And it's basically saying, you getting to the end doesn't depend on you. Thank goodness, you will mess it up. It depends on God who creates all things, sustains all things, and brings all things to his good purpose and ends. He who began the gospel in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's eternity. There is complete and total hope and freedom of future fear. So that your identity, he's saying to the Philippians, your identity is a citizen of heaven, a child of God, an eternal being even now. You want an identity? Start with this. Who you are and what's going to happen in your future depends on God and you can depend on God. He is the Lord of all. Paul, talking more specifically about his own identity and the transformation from the gospel that happened, writes about it in Philippians 3 that Matt Hemsley is going to preach on in two weeks. He basically says this, I used to find my identity in my ethnicity, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, this type of Jewish person, I found it in in my religious zealousness, my holiness, the way I followed all the rules. I found it in my success, the way I was climbing the ladder. I found it in all these things. But now that I am in Christ, I think all of that is dung. It's rubbish. It matters not. What I care about now, I have in full. I have Christ Jesus. That's where I find my identity. My status, my worth, my future are bound up in him and he will not let me go. And so I pursue him with all my heart, fearless, reckless, no more guilt, shame, or fear. That's my identity. Paul is unshakable, joyful, hopeful, and at peace in all circumstances. Because his identity is not in himself, not in what he does. His identity is in the one whose kingdom is inevitable. Here's your gospel identity. You are forgiven. No more guilt. You are a child of God. No more shame. You are an heir of eternity no more fear. You are worthy, you are loved. Those are the terms of a gospel identity. Now, we don't believe that often. We try to add to it. So we think, okay, so my identity is in Christ and because I'm a pretty good person. My identity is in Christ and I work really hard and I'm a good employee and I've got a good career. So we kind of say, you know, Christ plus. Christ plus, I've got a perfect family. Christ plus people love me. The plus, the plus adds nothing. If anything, it takes away. And will cause you to be shaken when your fears are realized. 
But what if we did believe what God says about us, full stop, and lived out of that? We too would be unshakable. Paul lived out of that. And not only did he know whose he was, but he also knew who he was, who he is in Christ. His unique identity and calling built out of his gospel calling. All of us have a unique identity and calling. The way that God, through us, wants to transform the world and us. We all share the possibility, the share, the brotherhood, sisterhood of being children of God, forgiven, heirs of eternity. But you and I have different identities in Christ. Ways that God uniquely placed us in this world at this time to live life to the full. Paul's was this. You, Paul, are a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. Which is amazing because Paul spent his whole life trying to kill Gentiles, right? He had lived his life as a Roman citizen, ironic, right? Allowing him to enter into Gentile worlds. But he had also built his whole life on this foundation of Jewish biblical understanding. He takes all of that now because God has transformed him and he's pursuing the Gentiles for the sake of Christ, not for the sake of death. What he... He was completely flipped around and his heart was completely sold out to pour out his life so that Christ would be exalted wherever he went and the whole Gentile world would know Jesus Christ. His unique identity as a minister of the gospel gives him a singular aim. I am aiming for Christ. I want to proclaim Christ. I want Christ to be glorified. I want to be with Christ. He says it in our passage here. Here's what he's about. Chapter one, verse 18. Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. Verse 20, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. My desire, verse 23, is to be with Christ, but it's also to remain for your progress in the faith in Christ. Whatever I do, it's Christ. I'm a minister of the gospel for the Gentiles, and I know whatever happens, God will fulfill that purpose through me. Whether I live or die, whether I preach again or stay in this prison, the gospel will go forth. Christ will be glorified. I'm at peace. So Paul is able to conclude, verse 21, to live, Christ, to die, gain. And I bet his Roman arresters, the prison guards, the leadership that are trying to get rid of him are like, what can we do to this guy? We arrest him and we beat him and we arrest him and beat him. He's unstoppable. He's still joyful. What can we do to this sort of a guy? Paul has a clear sense of identity and calling in Christ and it creates an unshakable life with purpose for Christ. I was recently listening to a set of talks by a guy named Jamie Winship who worked as a negotiator in um, kind of ISIS and Taliban territories for the U.S. and then eventually became a missionary and now he's back in the U.S. A couple years ago he was giving this talk about a young man a Muslim man who had converted to faith in Christ. The man was 25 years old. He had converted just one year earlier. He was arrested by, I, I think it was ISIS, and they were torturing him, saying, renounce Christ, renounce Christ. And as they're torturing him, he's praying, and he's calling out to Christ. And he hears the voice of Jesus saying to him quietly, I am with you in your pain. Every time they hurt you, more of me comes out. 
And he began to be joyful, calling out in joy to Jesus every time they heard him. And he called out to Jesus, I want to see more of you. I want more of you. How can I actually see you? And he heard Jesus say, you will have to come with me. He said, I want to come with you then. His captors realized this wasn't working. The more they hurt him, the more he called out in joy to Jesus. I said, should we kill him? (laughs) And he said, yes, yes. (laughs) Then I'll see Jesus. And they're like, we can't kill him. He wants to be killed. He said, no, 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 go ahead. I want to see Jesus. He's invincible. He's 25. Been a Christian for one year. Those of you who are in this room who are under 25, what are you doing? What are you living for? What are you afraid of? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what he is calling you to uniquely? Don't mess around, piddle around with religion. Go fully in on Jesus Christ. Find your identity and calling in him and be fearless. What if we did this? What if we, all of us, in this room, over the next year, truly found our identity in Christ, believed what God said about us instead of the lies inside of our head? You are forgiven. You are loved. You are my child. You are worthy. And believed that and found that our identity and future were in Christ so that to the point where nothing could take it away. Yeah, you could succeed in business or fail. You're okay. Now, it doesn't mean you want to fail, right? You could have a healthy life or deal with sickness. Of course, you want the healthy life, but either way, your identity, your purpose, and your future are secure. And what if from that we understood, each of us individually, our unique calling in his kingdom, our unique identity? And I don't just mean your job or your gifts and talents, although they might be bound up in that, but the way that God has uniquely wired you and empowered you to live out life to the full in this world for his sake and for yours. You are an encourager or a peacemaker or a justice seeker or a teacher or a builder or a creator And you understood that the the unique way that God has wired you is going to push out into your job and your family and everywhere you go, you're going to be building. Everywhere you go, you are making peace. And you begin to thrive into that person God has made you to be, not just for your sake, but for the sake of his kingdom. And at that point, you are experiencing heaven. You're living the life you were made for now and always. At that point, we can ask on a daily basis, God, what do you want me to do? We'll have the clarity and direction and purpose because what we will want most at its core will be Christ. This summer, we're going to spend 12 weeks in the book of Exodus and I'm going to pass out some devotional guides where I'm going to ask all of us to discern what God is calling us to as a church 
But more importantly, what is he calling you to? What is he calling you to? Are you finding your identity in him? And how has he uniquely called you in this world? And whether you're entering college or you're leaving college or you're 75 and been following Jesus for 75 years, this is a season of saying, God, what do you want in and through me now? How can I live life to the full? There is a life, if the Bible is true, if Jesus is risen, there is a life of freedom and peace and joy and hope in all circumstances. It's the life you are made for in his kingdom now and always. And it starts with believing whose you are. What God says about you, not the other voices. And understanding through him, through Christ, who you are made to be uniquely. And then stepping into the life God is calling you into today. Let's pray. You have come, Lord Jesus, that we might have life and have it to the full. That is not just a promise for some far off distant future. That is a promise now to have life and life to the full now. To face our worst possible fears with fearlessness. To live in the world in a way that matters with singular clarity and unshakableness a part of your inevitable kingdom. Give us eyes to see how you see us and to live out of that reality. In Jesus' name, amen.